All right, you can open your Bible to the book of Micah. Micah. Now, this is the the fourth minor prophet that we are going to go through today. I um I want to start off by just giving you a brief breakdown. If you've read the book, you may you may see what um, where this comes from. So chapters 1 to 3, we have sin and sentence. Sentence. Is sentence with an A or an E? Sen? E? No, man. Okay, sen- uh, sin and sentence. All right, so that is Israel's sin, or Judah's sin, and the associated sentence that God gives them, the judgment that God gives them for their sin or for their corruptness. And then we have in chapters 4 to 5, we have hope. And that hope is spoken above, uh, about as a king and his kingdom. So we have a king and his kingdom. That is prophetical, speaking about Jesus coming, um, setting up his kingdom on earth, and he will be the king who will rule in that millennial kingdom. So there's hope in the middle of this book. And then we have in chapters 6 and 7, we have justice and mercy, which are the, can I say, the theme of those chapters, which is, first of all, characteristic of who God is, but also what God expects from us as His children. And that's why the sermon will be what, what the Lord requires. What does God require from us as His people? Now, something that I was tempted to preach about is this layout. Because if you look closely at it, it's actually a wonderful sermon. You have sin and the sentence. We are sinners. And because God is just, there is a sentence, there is punishment. Any good judge who does not punish wrong is not a good judge, right? And so for a good God to not punish sin would be an evil deed, which would not make God good. And so sin has a sentence. But then, for Him to be good, there needs to be hope. There needs to be a way to say, this is how you attain this hope. This is how you can look forward to that future hope. And this is through whom. And so He tells us about hope, and that hope is Jesus and His coming kingdom. But... If you reject the hope, in other words, you reject the mercy that is shown to you, you leave yourself open to God's just justice. But if you accept the mercy, then you know that the justice of God is poured out on Jesus. And then you receive the mercy. And so this book, I almost want to say, is a a big gospel presentation in a sense about how God is good but needs to punish sin, how there is hope but that hope needs to be accepted by the mercy of Jesus Christ. Otherwise you leave yourself exposed to the, the just justice of God. As we've been doing over the last few weeks, we can't work through the whole book so I want to point out a few things as we work through the book and um, hopefully that way you get a good idea of what this book is about, what the history of the book is, and then also how it applies to us. But before we get into that, let's just pray together. Lord, I, I'm excited for 
what you will show us this morning. Well, thank you so much for, for your word. It never ceases to inspire and, and guide and convict and teach, Lord. Um, I'm so thankful for that, and I thank you so much that we have this privilege, Lord, of meeting together and being able to open your word and see what you have to say to us today, Lord. I ask that you would give us ears to hear, um, Lord, that you, would, that you would prick our hearts and point out the specific things in our lives that we need to change. We want to do it, Lord. We want to worship you better. Um, Lord, we want to be um, servants to you, joyful servants um, at the privilege that we have of being children of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Micah chapter 1 verse 1 says, Micah 1 verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah the Morastite in the days of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, if you have a timeline, there were timelines available, so I hope you got if you have, don't have one yet. But you'll see here during the kings of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, Micah does not even mention a king of Israel. Even though Israel was still there, they were not in captivity yet, um, but it doesn't mention them. But that's because Micah, the Morastite, is from the southern tribes, and he's ministering mostly to the southern tribes in Judah. His mission was not towards the northern tribes as much. He does mention Israel and he does speak against them, but it's, it's much less and brief, I almost want to say. Also because his ministry was during a time in which Israel went into captivity. Now, he speaks about King Jotham and King Ahaz and Hezekiah. Now, what was happening in the country of Israel, or of Judah, the whole um, nation? What was happening in this time? Well, Ahaz, well, let me, let's start at the, Ahaz was the king of Judah, and he was not a good king. You can read about him in 2 Kings 16. He was not a good king. The reason I say that is, in that time, you had Syria and Israel, which was up in the north, and Assyria, which was the ruling, conquering nation of that time. That was the nation that Jonah prophesied against. That was Nineveh, all of that. Okay? Now, they were busy taking over the world. And so Syria and Israel decided, we're going to take over Judah. We want to set up a king in Judah that is willing to do what we want to do. And they did it while Ahaz was king. And so Israel, what they did is they went to Syria and they said, will you partner with me as we try and take over Judah? Now, first of all, you should know that that is exactly what the book of Hosea is about. This, these friendships that they're, they're, they're having with these other nations. These, these things that they were not supposed to do. And so they, this king of Israel, he goes and he speaks to this king of Syria. And so they come and they try and take over Judah, this partnership. But they fail. Okay? But what Ahaz then does, king of Judah, he goes and he says... If they attack again, they will prevail against me. So I'm going to make a partnership with Assyria. So now Judah is doing what Israel was doing by making partnerships with pagan countries under this King Ahaz of Judah. 
So now he's made a partnership. And let me just say, if you read Isaiah chapter 7, you'll see that this is exactly what Isaiah told him not to do. So just to put that in perspective, Micah and Isaiah were prophesying during the same time. So Isaiah tells King Ahaz, do not do that. He actually tells him, be quiet, be at peace. They will not prevail against you. But Ahaz decides, no, I'm going to Assyria. I'm going to make a partnership with them. And what he does to make this partnership is he takes the gold and the silver and all the things that were brought to the temple and he goes and gives it to this king of Assyria to say, here is my devotion to you. All these things that belong to God, I give to you if you will help me defend against the Syrians and the Israelites. And so this Assyrian king says, cool, I'll do that. So he comes and he attacks Syria. Now, he destroys Syria, Damascus. Now, Israel and Syria are right next to each other. And so now that Syria has been conquered, Israel stands alone there in the north, and now they're bordering on this Assyrian conquering nation. So what happens is a lot of the Israelites flee to Judah. They run away from the enemy that's on their border. They're trying to get away from this. And what happens because of that is these Israelites who were mixing their paganism with their religion started running into Judah. And so Judah becomes polluted through that. And when Ahaz, when Assyria conquered Syria, King Ahaz from Judah went to go meet this Tiglath-Pileser, that is the Assyrian king, goes and meets him, and he looks at the altar that he has built. And he says to his priest, the Jewish priest, I want an altar like that that I can offer on. And so this Jewish king says, I want to offer on a pagan altar. Build me one and offer on that. And so this is what this king Ahaz was doing. He was bringing paganism into Judah. Israelites were fleeing from the Syrians that were conquered and the Assyrians which are conquering. And so now all of this is flooding down. And just soon after this, um, there's a king after the king that was, um, what was his name? Uh, I think it's, I can't remember now, Pekka or something like that, the, the Israelite king. Just after that, you have the last king of Israel, his name is Hosea. So not Hosea, Hosea. And he stops giving tribute, this payment to the Assyrians. And so the Assyrians conquer Israel. And that's where the captivity takes place. And even more refugees, I want to say, fled to Judah. So now you have this influx of paganism. You have pagan nations all around. And you have Ahaz who said, I will also pay tribute to this Assyrian king. So you have a completely different Judah, a Judah who's becoming the Israel who's in captivity. Have a look at chapter 1 verse 9. Chapter 1 verse 9 essentially echoes what I just said about what's happening to Judah. It says in 1 verse 9, for her wound is incurable. Speaking about Samaria, this, in other words, Israel. For her wound is incurable, for it has come unto Judah. He is come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. So he's saying her wound, Samaria, Israel, who, was who will be destroyed, who, was, who are doing all these evil things, it has come now to Judah. So have a look at verse 13. O thou inhabitant of Lashish, which is in Judah, bind the chariot to the swift beast. She is the, be um, she is the beginning 
of the sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. These transgressions of Israel were now found in Judah. Now, what started happening? Well, if it's imitating what happened in Israel, it will start imitating the things that Israel was doing. The pagan worship, the idolatry, all of that. So have a look at chapter 2, Micah chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it, because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields, and they take them by violence, and houses, and they take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, against this family do I devise an evil. Now what happened in verse 1? They said, they devise iniquity. And God says, now I devise an evil. This, this land of Judah, who was the upright one between these two, was starting to degrade as well during the time of Micah. And something that I just want to point out on that is, devising iniquity results in God devising evil against you. You may think about Proverbs chapter 6, about the things that God hates. Then in Proverbs chapter 6, it speaks about the things that God hates. It says, Frowardness is in his heart. He deviseth mischief continually. He soweth discord. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. And it says, These six, six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And then it says, A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. God hates that. Now you'll see later, point three is walking humbly. And God, it's another thing that God hates is this proud look. All right, so we don't want to be there where we think these evil things, and that's where Judah was heading. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 8. Micah chapter 2, verse 8. It says, even of late, my people is risen up as an enemy. It's difficult to read it that way because I want to say are. Even of late, my people are risen up as an enemy. Ye pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. In other words, these men are coming back from war. They're in their homeland. They were just fighting a battle, and they come home, and that's where they get robbed. They come home, and that's where they get destroyed. Verse 9, it says, The women of my people ye have cast out of their pleasant houses. From their children have ye taken away my glory forever. They were robbing and destroying their own. They were working evil against the defenseless people like the women and the children. There was no justice. There was no mercy amongst these people. Have a look at chapter 3. Chapter 3 verse 1 says, and I said, Here I pray, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel, is, not for, um, is it not for you to know judgment? You are the heads, you are the princes. Is it not for you to know what's right and wrong? Verse 2, who hate the good and love the evil. Who hate the good and love the evil. And so this 
nation was starting to degrade from its leadership downwards. Now, geographically, Israel, or let me say Jude, Jerusalem, is up here on a hill. And then down the hill, and then you have the valleys. And so up here on the hill where the temple was and where everything was, was starting to flow down into the valley. It was flowing into these communal people of the land. And so that's something that we need to be aware of, is that the leadership. It starts at the neighbors, right? You had Syria, you had Israel, then it came to Judah. Then it went to Judah's highest place where the leaders in Jerusalem and everything was. And it's starting to flow into the, the, the countries. Into, you, you'll, I noticed it when I came here from Joburg. That's where I grew up. And I came here and I came to Potch. It felt like, ooh, it's a little small, nice town, you know? People still say hi. And it's, but you see it degrades, it degrades, it degrades. So be aware of that. Um, and this is something as well. There's no justice. If the rulers of the house call evil good and good evil, that is a terrible thing. And I stand amazed sometimes when I watch the news or I watch decisions that are made. I'm like, that is exactly what is happening. The innocent are punished. So evil is being called good and good is being called evil. All right, chapter 3, um, verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 5. It says, Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets, that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry peace. And he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. So in other words, the prophet says, as long as you put something in my mouth that I can chew on, peace to you, blessing. But if you, to you who, do, who doesn't give me anything, I declare war against you. No justice. Have a look um, at verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10, it says, They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward. And the priests thereof teach for hire. And the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come against us. They prophesy for money. They give guidance for something in reward. There's this, there's this corrupt system, even amongst the priests and the prophets of the people. And then they have the audacity to say, nothing will come against us. We're doing this in the name of the Lord. Does it ring a bell? Yeah. Unfortunately, that is infiltrated into Christianity, into the church today. Give me money and God will bless you. Right? And that's exactly... What is going on here? No justice, corruption, abuse of power, bribery. And I just want to say, that is what blind spiritual pride looks like. In the name of the Lord, give. And if you don't give, God will curse you. Right? Absolute blasphemy and done in the name of God. Now, look at Micah's response to this nation, this I want to say, social structure he finds himself in. Now, in chapter 3, that's what we've been reading. That's where we've seen this corruption. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Then shall the seers be ashamed, and the diviners confounded. Yea, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. But then Micah says, But truly I am full of the power of the Spirit of the Lord, and of judgment, and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. 
So even in the midst of this broken world that Micah found himself in, and where there was no power among the priesthood and the prophets and everything was corrupt, he said, nevertheless, I, or the Spirit of God, is on me, and I have might, and I have power. And he can speak boldly against the evil of those people. Why can he do that? Because he knew who God is, and he knew God was with him. He understood something about what the Lord requires. Now, another thing why Micah could respond this way is have a look at chapter 7. In the midst of all of this, look at Micah's attitude. Look at Micah's response. Micah chapter 7 and verse 6, it says, just to give you some context, verse 6 says, For the son dishonoreth the father, and the daughter riseth up against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord, and I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. He waits on the Lord even when, or I want to say especially when, things around you are crumbling. Even if the brokenness is all the way through society to the family where father and son and daughter and mother and mother-in-law and sister, daughter-in-law and everything is breaking down. He waits on the Lord because he says, I know that my God will hear me. So Micah had this response because he had a degree of faith that the other people did not have. He had something that I want to say is authentic. He had an authentic faith, which means that he had assurance in things that he had not yet seen. He had an assurance in the midst of the time he was in of things he has not yet seen. I can say that because chapter 4 and 5, he focuses on that hope. He knows that God is going to do something. He holds on to God's promise of that future, even though he has no evidence of it right now. And that's what made him stand out. And that's what made him be the prophet that he was. So that takes me to chapter 4 and to chapter 5. Let's have a look at chapter 4, verse 1. This is part of what made Micah have the different approach to this time. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of, of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off, and, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn um, war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. What a contrasting message <laughs> to what was going on in the life of Israel, Judah in that time. There's going to be a king. He's going to sit on the mountain, and he 
will speak. He will show the paths, and we will follow in it. And swords will become plowshares and pruning hooks and become means by which we farm and live together. Like, it'll be a completely, there will be no war, and people will not raise, rise against people. That is, that is a wonderful time to look forward to where God rules and reigns and justice is served and there is mercy and there is hope and there is just, I want to say, there's peace and things are right because we have the right king on the throne. What a joy and what a hope to cling to. My question is, do you have that hope? In the life that you live now, do you have that hope? I know things get tough. I know things are sometimes uncertain and I, I would dare to say that I don't think it's as bad as what was going on, but it could be really bad. But there is hope. Do you have that hope? And do you live today as if you believe it? <laughs> if you believe that there is that hope, then surely your life should at least have different motives and you should treat or act in circum certain circumstances differently. It has to be. Because you have that hope, and that's why Micah looked differently. All right, let's have a look at chapter 5. Let's read about the coming Messiah. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among thousands of Judah. Now, you know Jesus is born in Bethlehem, right? You should know this. You've sung songs about it. Okay. Bethlehem. So here he's saying, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, thou shalt be little among... Uh, though thou be little among thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. That is to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, um, from everlasting. So this Messiah has been there from everlasting, and he will come and he will rule in Israel. And what he will do is he will dispose of sin. Have a look at chapter 7. When Jesus comes, now we know Jesus came and there was a part fulfillment of prophecy when Jesus came and he was this king, but he wasn't this physical ruling and reigning king, but he conquered sin and death. And so this is what we read about in chapter 7, chapter 7 verse 18. It says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will, he will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And Jesus came. He had victory over that, that prophecy of Jesus of Bethlehem who comes, who, he comes to Israel and to give us that spiritual victory. And one day he's coming to set up his kingdom and to rule as king in Israel. Now that is what makes you live a different way in a degrading society is knowing that God still has a plan. God is in control. There is a hope. And can you trust in Him? Do you have that hope? Because that is the question. That is the only way you get through this differently. Now, turn to chapter 6. And we're going to start with what the Lord requires. What the Lord requires. Verse 8 of chapter 6 is where we're going to get most of our content here. Micah 6 verse 8, it says, 
He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But there's so much good <laughs> in verses 1 to 7 up to there that we need to go through it quickly. So, verse 1, it says, Hear, hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. And so it's almost like a court setting is set up, where God says, I have an issue. I have a controversy with you. And you'll see Israel respond to what God is accusing them of. And God actually goes on in, um, in verse 3. He says, O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. He says, what have I done to deserve this treatment? What have I done that you are making alliances with other countries that you don't trust what my prophets are telling you, that you are rather serving idols, what have I done that you put all your time, devotion, and energy in these things and forsake me? What have I done? He says, testify against me. If I'm guilty, tell me. That's what God asked them. Verse 4, verse, verse four to 5, he says, For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and I redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent thee, and I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. And so what is happening here, God is saying, look at your past. Look at the examples of where I have delivered you, I've established you, I've did miracles, I've rescued you, I've shown my righteousness, I've given my law, I've done all these things. I've, you were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out. I did all this. And so he points them back to that and he says, please tell me what did I do wrong? Why don't you love me? What should I have done differently? Just remember, <laughs> this has now been hundreds of years before we're on the brink of captivity. It's been multiple prophets, multiple priests. All of, it's not just all of a sudden. God has had patience and patience and patience and mercy and mercy and he's not given them what they deserve over and over and over again. He says, what more should I have done? Verse 6, Israel responds. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves of a year old? Now, this is a good question. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? That's a good question. 
but it's a shame that they're actually having to ask, um, how do we do this again? I know, I know we are the chosen people and God has revealed himself to us, but can you remind me what that means again? How, how do I get to God? How do I approach him? Isn't, it's, like I say, it's a good question. Started the question, but wow, <laughs> it's a shame that if you have been exposed to truth, if you've been saved, if you've been in church, that you need to say, how do I, how do I speak to God again? <laughs> what does he require of me? I can't remember, right? Started the question, but yeah, that should not be the case. Verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with... Now, this is Israel asking. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? They completely miss the heart of God. They treat God like one of these pagan gods. They've been so brainwashed, so infiltrated that I just, so the pagan gods want this type of offering. And he asked about the first one because some pagan religions, they offered their children. And so they asked, is that what, is, I can't, is that what this God wants again? They don't know the law of God. They don't know what's going on. And so they're willing to give all these offerings. They're willing to bring all these things. They, they almost think of God like what the prophets have been teaching them. If you don't give me something in my mouth, I do not say something. I don't prophesy peace to you. If you do not bring something to the temple, I'm not going to bless you. And so they think, oh, God is probably like our prophets. And that, well, <laughs> that should be to anyone who has any opportunity as a Christian to display Christ to the world. Be aware of that. Because people look at that and say, oh, that's what Jesus is like. So try and live that life that lives up to what Jesus has called us to live. Now, what does God require? He requires righteousness. He doesn't require this ritual. It doesn't require this dead ritual where you bring your thousands of calves and lambs and rivers of oil. It's almost like they're using this excessive language to say, everything I have except my heart. <laughs> right? And it's exactly what God says. I want you. I don't care if you have rivers of oil. I, you'll imagine having, I don't know why you would want that, but imagine if you had a river of oil. <laughs> okay, maybe... Maybe I could imagine why now that I think about it. But anyways, crude oil. <laughs> imagine having all of that. And God says, I don't, I, I don't want that. If you have money, don't think that you are twisting God's arm by saying, but I give so much. Right? It's great that you give. But does God have your heart? Do you know him? Does he know you? And if you don't have anything, don't think that your inability to give does anything towards your standing before God. Rich or poor, it doesn't matter. Where is your heart? All right? He wants mercy and justice. He doesn't want sacrifice. He wants humility. And he doesn't want this self-righteous um, religiousness that was found in the day. Now let's look at verse 8 again. 
Verse 8 of chapter 6 says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee. So, He has shown us. If you have read your Bible, I want to say to any extent, you have seen that there is something that God does require. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to say, I'm going to take the higher ground and spiritualize my situation and say, I'm waiting for God to give me a word to show me. No. (laughs) What has He said? What has He said? What has He revealed to you? Don't go to the, maybe He'll call me to that little island next to Papua in five years from now and I'm waiting for Him to give, write something in the clouds. What has He said? Have you, have you subjected yourself to justice, mercy, and walking humbly? Because He said that. So why ask the question of that if you haven't even devoted yourself to this? So justice. Justice. What is justice? I think in the context of what we're looking at is having a biblical understanding of what is wrong and what is right. That is what justice is. What has God said is good? What has God said no go? It's justice. And that relates to how you treat people. What is a good way to treat others and what is a wrong way to treat others? What does God require? Mercy. That is forgiving love. Forgiving love. And if Israel say they don't have an example of what that looks like, they have no idea what they're talking about. (laughs) What is forgiving love? Now on that point, you need to have seen forgiving love, experienced forgiving love, to be able to live that. And then walking, let me say W-H, walking humbly. I don't want to say humility. The verse is walking humbly, because I think it has to do with exactly that. It's the way in which you live. It's the way in which you act. But I want to, I want to apply it to your dependence. Depend, that is a P, depend versus your own, how can I say, ability. Sorry, my board is getting small. How much do you depend on God and how much do you lean on your own abilities? And that is walking humbly. It's to say, I'm leaning on God for my guidance, for the way I live, for how I treat people. I'm leaning on Him, not me. That, my ability, is what lifts you in pride. That is what causes the state of Israel. That proud heart that we are great, we can do it. We can do whatever we want. God is with us, even if we are corrupt in everything that we do. So, justice, mercy, and walking humbly. These three should go together in everything that we do. Notice, the question is asked, what shall we do? Or what does the Lord require? And the one answer is threefold. In other words, these three go together. Justice, mercy, and humility. 
You can't have justice without mercy because that's pride. That's destructive. To just say, I will show you what is right and I'll show you what is wrong and if you don't do what's right, I will tell you and I will get you and I will, I will execute justice. Without mercy leads to a spiritual pride where you think, I am now the one who needs to level the playing field. So you don't want justice without, you don't want Bible bashing <laughs> without mercy. But also mercy without justice says everything goes. God's cool with everything. Do whatever you want. You can worship him this way. You can worship him that way. You don't have to go to church. You can go to church. Just do whatever you want. It's cool. God's merciful, right? But wait, what about he's also just? He also requires something. It's not just willy-nilly do whatever you want. And I also want to say it could lift people in pride as well. Because it's a weird thing. People think that, but it's in a prideful way. I, 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 I realize it, but it doesn't make sense. I like to say, you know what, I don't, I, don't, I don't judge people about things like that. I don't think you can do these two. <laughs> I don't think you can properly balance justice and mercy without humility. I think you will lean towards the one or you'll lean towards the other. But if you're not walking humbly with God, you will either execute too much justice or you'll display too much mercy and you don't know where that balance is. And so humility balances justice and mercy. And so you need to keep these three together. You cannot have a perfectly balanced relationship with others if you are not on the receiving end of an active, balanced relationship with the one who exemplified it best. I'll read that again. A lot of words. You cannot have this perfectly balanced relationship towards others if you are not on the receiving end of this perfectly balanced relationship towards the one who exemplified it best. You need to be in a relationship with the God who exemplified this, with Jesus who exemplified that. If you don't, you will not find that balance. All of these three meet at the cross. You can't separate any of them. In Romans 3, we looked at that verse last week, that God is the just and the justifier. In other words, he is just, but he also shows mercy. He's the just and the justifier. And it's speaking about Jesus in that context. Jesus on the cross. On the cross, he died. The just died for the unjust. The merciful for the merciless. When Jesus cried on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The very people who pierced his hands, who spat in his face, who stuck a spear in his side, who stuck a crown of thorns on his head, who lashed him, the people who were laughing at him, looking at him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it's in that moment when God's justice is poured out on Jesus. And Jesus' mercy is shown to the whole world. The humbled creator hangs in front of his proud creation. Imagine, oh. <laughs> Imagine that the God 
who created every single person standing in front of him, who knew them from the day they were born, who nurtured them, hanging, being mocked. And he says, Father, forgive them. That is mercy. If we have truly seen and experienced this at the cross, it has to flow out in the way we treat each other. We have to live justly. We have to show mercy. And we want to walk humbly with God. It has to. If you know God, it has to. And so I want to close with what Micah closed in the end of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 18. Chapter 7, verse 18, it says, Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, and retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy? He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth of Jacob and the mercy of Abraham, to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto, the fa- unto the father, our fathers from the days of old. Micah closes with saying that God delights in mercy. Have you experienced God's mercy personally? God doesn't delight in the punishing of the wicked. He doesn't. He says that in Ezekiel 18. He does not delight in that. He delights in showing mercy. Now, have you experienced God's mercy? Have your sins been cast into the depths of the sea? Have your sins, not, yes, Jesus died for the sins of all, have your sins been cast into the depths of the sea? Has your slate been wiped clean? He promised to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through his seed. That's what we read in verse 20. So if you're saved, you are part of the fulfillment of that prophecy. But another part of that prophecy is the kingdom that's coming, this hope. Now, are you part of that? Will you be there? Will you be ruling and reigning with Christ on this earth in a restored way? That's the question you ask yourself. Because without that, what hope do you have beyond this world? What hope do you have beyond now? (laughs) There needs to be a future hope. And that Messiah, Jesus, will come ruling and reigning. Are you living in a way that prepares you for His kingdom? The way in which you prepare yourself for that kingdom is to walk justly. To love mercy and to walk humbly with God. May I ask you to stand, please? Close your eyes. Bortma, if you play something, please. Lord, I thank you that we can be here this morning, Lord. It is truly wonderful what you have done. Lord, thank you for showing us 
your mercy for not giving us what we deserve, Lord, but for reaching out and saying, I want to save them. I want to redeem them. I want to have fellowship with them. I want to walk with them. Lord, we, we do not deserve it. And I pray that you will take any thought of our deservingness of that away. Lord, the moment we start thinking we deserve it is the moment we become like Israel. So please keep us, keep us near the cross where we see justice, where we, the justice that we deserve poured out on Christ. Lord, but where we see mercy and where we see the perfect example of humility and how to walk in a way that pleases you. Well, thank you that that can, at the same time, Lord, I want to say it brings, it brings tears, but it brings so much joy. Lord, I pray that you would help us, everyone here this morning, to go out from here, Lord, with a desire for justice, a desire to love mercy, and desire to walk with you, Lord, humbly. That is not possible if you're not saved, if you've not been to the cross. But please, if you have not been saved, please come speak to one of us this morning. Lord, thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, the power of it. You are a wonderful God. Thank you that you delight in mercy. For without your mercy, where would we be? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.